Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, August the 24th, 2023. Yesterday, we had the Distinguished science journalist uh, Anya Kamenetz on the show talking about the polycrisis, particularly how to deal with kids or our kids in this crisis, explaining to them why they can't play outside, what to say to kids uh, when the world is ending or the world is burning and the air is unusable and fire is all around us. Fire seems to be ubiquitous, particularly in the summer of 2023, when we look back, I think we will remember it as the summer of fires. We're all familiar, of course, with the tragedy in Hawaii and Lahaina. Um, but the headlines are equally bad in uh, Salem, Oregon, and all over California, where I am. Uh, second biggest fire of the year is forcing evacuations as we speak. One man who's been following the fires, literally and symbolically, as my guest today on the show, Nick Mott, like Anya. He's a distinguished science reporter. He's an NPR guy, and he's the co-author of a new book called This Is Wirefire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. He's joining us from Livingston, Montana. Uh, welcome, Nick. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. You've got that NPR kind of voice, Nick. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, got the voice and got the mic set up and everything. Would it be fair to say, Nick, that when we look back at the summer of 23, we're going to mostly remember it as the beginning of our age of fire, of ubiquitous fire and of bad air? I would argue that, that this age had begun a while back. You know, this summer has been really bad. There's been a lot of things that have happened to get fire kind of on the map. You know, one of those things, obviously, is the tragedy in Maui. Now, there is the smoke that we've experienced on the East Coast, even from the from the huge wildfires in Canada. But this isn't the first year this stuff is happening. Um, we've seen really bad fire years, many years in the past. I haven't looked at what the acreage totally burnt this year is at yet, but I don't think it's one of the worst years actually in the last 10 years. Um, we've had a number of really catastrophic fire seasons year after year that are really out of character for the last 50 odd years of living with fire. And so I think that when we think about the age of wildfire, every summer we seem to have something or every fire season, we seem to have something that is terrible that we think will change our relationship with fire going into the future. And then it doesn't happen. You know, people forget really fast, just sort of the way the news cycle works about what what happened. A lot of policy experts will say, you know, after a big wildfire, a community will have a policy window to get things passed. And that window is pretty short lived because people just don't remember. So I think people will remember this year and especially people impacted by the tragedy in, in, in Maui, for example. But for the public at large, I don't know if this is going to be a drastically different thing just because our, our attention spans are so short. Yeah, you may be right. My family is from Santa Rosa in California. We lived through those tragic fires. Fortunately, we actually lived through them rather than got burnt up. Um, Anya Kamenetz talks about this polycrisis. You've given these issues a great deal of thought, Nick. In this polycrisis, is the environment the heart of the issue? Is it the thing that's driving all the other crises? 
to me, I think our relationship with the environment and the natural world is part of all of the situations we've gotten in ourselves today. It, it so much comes back to how we relate to the world we're in. I mean, I think in terms of wildfire, in terms of so much, we've treated the natural world as something that we are in control of, that we can manipulate to our will. That and we see, we've seen through wildfires, we've seen through a changing climate that we are not in charge. And when we think we are, that's when really horrendous stuff starts to happen. Like I think reevaluating our relationship with the world that we are a part of is part of a more harmonious, just and stable world, not just climate system in the future. It's not just fires, is it, Nick? Uh, you're talking to me from Livingston, Montana. Uh, a year ago, there was terrible flooding there, historic flooding. Everything seems to be out of sync, whether it's the temperature, the fires, the flooding, the drought. Everything is going wrong, it would seem. That's one way of looking at it. And that's a really pessimistic way. And I, But I think it's also accurate. You know, all kinds of things are going wrong. And we should say the, the relationship... I guess we should spell out also the relationship between these things like floods and fires and climate change. It seems in one, in one sense intuitive, but I want to make sure folks are really grasping some of the mechanisms here. So for flooding, you know, last summer um, in June, we experienced uh, at least a one in 500 year flooding event. And that was in part because we had a snowy spring in the high country. And then we had what would normally come down as snow in June up high came down as rain because it was warmer. And so that rain just sheeted off all of that snow into the river system and the river couldn't handle it. So the river overflowed. Basically, we had enormous flooding, not just in town here in Livingston, but in Yellowstone National Park that took out bridges and roads and uh, in other communities around, too. And what we find with both fires and floods is that those who are most vulnerable are often those who are most impacted by these events. Um, fire, you know, some of the driving mechanisms see, seem even more intuitive, right? Because you know, climate change means more heat and drought, which means more fire. Um, things are a little more complicated than just that. You know, it com does come down to our how snow lands in the spring as well. We have less snowpack on the mountains and it comes out, comes off earlier. Things dry out. And of course, you know, there's less moisture in the air, more drought, more heat also leads to more fires. And uh, also even, you know, warmer, less warmer nights means shorter, like smaller windows to fight fires, more time that which fire can spread. So anyway, that's that's a bit of a tangent, some but not all of the links between climate change and wildfire and droughts. And the thing to say is it seems like everything's going wrong. And and in a lot of ways, that's true. But I think when we talk about these events, it's easy to make them really one dimensional, like all fire is bad, all flooding is bad. But both of these events have really important, actually can have, I should say, not always, have really important ecological benefits too, benefits as well. So, you know, one Thing to make note of this all of our forest systems pretty much across the country have evolved with fire and in the west relatively frequent fire so another reason for the problem the that we've got another reason we're facing the problems we're facing today is because we've tried to treat it like i said before like we can control fire for the last hundred years we've tried to snuff out fires and even as science has recognized that a lot of ecosystems are dependent on fire to thrive we put them out and that makes fire worse by loading the, loading many forests, not all forests, with more fuel that can make fires burn much hotter and faster and spread more. But we need fire and we need fire of the right kind. The right kind is not fire that burns through communities or kind the kind that burned a million acres in these crazy hot wild things that we we often see experience but fire is not one thing even the same fire can burn one area in a really destructive way and rejuvenate the ecosystem 
and another. So we are seeing things out of whack. We're seeing historical anomalies. But at the same time, many of these things that we in intuitively think are bad are not always bad. And that's one of the goals of our book is to help understand not just the negative implications of fire, but also the positive ones and how we can better live with the right kind of fire in the future. Yeah, I want to get after the break specifically to the book. Um, so you will have an opportunity to, uh, to talk specifically about it. But you talked about vulnerability. You had an interesting piece recently um, uh, in on Montana Public Radio about grizzly bears. And, and of course, the most vulnerable, I guess, are not humans, but nature itself. How is this impacting broadly, uh, the fact that nature is so out of whack, as you put it, Nick? with other creatures the grizzlies and every every other creature in in the forests of montana sure that's an interesting question and that piece was actually national npr piece so folks might have heard it um where, where you're at and the uh the short answer to the question is there's a lot of ways in which wildlife and nature is out of whack and, and because of what we've done not just in terms of climate change but also where we've built homes where we've built highways and roads and how we've just fragmented habitat. You know, when we talk about wildlife, habitat loss is probably is one of the major issues facing wildlife today. And with grizzly bears, that's a huge issue. Grizzly bears have made a historic recovery over since the since they were listed under the Endangered Species Act in 1975. They uh, there are about roughly a thousand grizzly bears near where I live in the Yellowstone ecosystem. And a lot of folks say that's too many bears, actually. They've done too good a job of coming back. Their range has expanded, too. They're in places they haven't been seen in more than a century. So that in a lot of ways, grizzlies are a conservation success stories story. But since we're talking about fire here, too, you know, a lot of folks wonder, what does wildfire mean for wildlife? How many bears or elk or whatever are killed by wildfire or have habitat that's lost by wildfire? And the answer is is one, of course, it depends. Um, but two, probably not as many as you think. A lot of these species, just like forests, depend on burning to to thrive. And it, again, it depends on the kind of fire. It depends on a whole lot of things. Um, but one place to look at look for an answer to this is back in the historic wildfires in Yellowstone in 1988, burned tons and tons of land, both in the park and in the region. And it was, you know, much like the smoke in the east this year, it was people were ringing alarm bells. They were like, holy crap, this is really bad. Um, you know, what's this mean for this sort of iconic area? And it turned out that it was not bad for wildlife. Um, these fires burning millions of acres probably didn't, you know, some animals were killed, um, but not that many animals know when to get out of the way, unlike people. And uh, there, the, you know, one scientist, I think, was quoted at the time saying, you know, the only we it wasn't that bad for wildlife, but we need to make we need to make Smokey the Bear extinct because Smokey the Bear has this sort of very one dimensional re relationship with wildfire saying, you know, we need to put all fire out. But I hope that answer was you're asking there a little bit. Yeah. And you and because you're obviously, you know, this stuff, you're you're painting it in more sophisticated terms than I think most people intuitively think. Joe Biden was in Hawaii recently touring the devastation uh, and announcing a hundred and eighty five million dollar mitigation and resilience package can government do much on this front or is this part of the problem the attempt to control nature well it all depends what that resilience package looks like um 
And in the case of Hawaii, I'm not familiar with what that $185 million will do. So I won't say if that particular instance will will be a good or a bad thing or probably both things, as, as many things are. What government can do is we do need more money. Excuse me. And we do need more more money to go towards two main things. One is forest projects that could make a meaningful difference in wildfire. When I say that, I mean things like thinning out forests and doing prescribed burning. Well, studies show that you know, forest thinning doesn't make the hugest difference when it comes to wildfire resilience. And that means like not taking, not logging, not clear cutting, not cutting down all the trees, but cutting down the smaller diameter ones that would have normally been taken out by historic wildfires that, were, that we did not allow to happen over the last hundred years. And that followed by prescribed burning, but meaning carefully planned, low intensity fire at the right time of year under the right conditions can make fire forests much more resilient to wildfire and especially make communities bordering those forests much more resilient to wildfire. So we can invest in that. And that's a, that investment takes both money and personnel and staff and resources and training. What we can also do and what we especially need to do and are not doing right now across the country and across the West, where what we see the wildfire problem in its most acute form, is invest in what people can do on their own property and in their own homes to become more resilient to wildfire. That means things like metal roofs in, in what's called the wildland urban interface, where people are at risk of wildfire. That means things like, you know, new, say new windows, sealing up it places in your house, like on your house that could be vulnerable to floating embers. So somewhat counterintuitively, people think of a wildfire coming through and they think like it's the big flames that are going to that are going to get you that are going to come as they as, and light your house on fire. What actually studies show makes houses burn is not the flame front itself. It's not like a, a campfire gradually encroaching on your house. It's the embers coming off of the fire that land on your roof, that land on, on your fence, that land on your deck or get into your attic or other ways into your house that then ignite the home. And as soon as one home is ignited, it can ignite other stuff around it, of course. So making houses more resilient to wildfire, that also means getting rid of some trees on your property, potentially. That means getting rid of fuel and mulch immediately around your house. There's a lot of things people can do to become more resilient to fire. And a lot of those things are expensive. They take time and money. So an investment from government in doing that stuff would go a long way. Other stuff government can do too comes down to zoning and regulations and codes to mandate that kind of work because a lot of people won't do that work on your own. You got limited time and resources and especially in new construction is a big issue too. Uh, so much new construction is happening in areas vulnerable to wildfire. And we need to make sure that that construction is happening in a thoughtful way. We're speaking with Nick Mott, the co-author of This is Wildfire, an important new book addressing how to cope with the threat of fire in our age of heat, as he puts it in his subtitle. Nick, we're going to take a short break. Uh, I want to credit our sponsor, Liberties, uh, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. We'll run a short ad for them. And then we'll be back. And I want to address specifically some of the stuff you deal with in the book. So stay with us, everyone. We'll be back with Nick Mott, the co-author of This is Wildfire, in a couple of seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. 
And to check out more, you go to libertiesjournal.com. Uh, we are talking with uh, Nick Mott, the co-author of This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. Uh, before the break, Nick, we talked about what government can do. Uh, but not everyone can wait for Joe Biden if their house is about to burn up. What sensible, doable advice do you include in this book? This is wildfire. Yes, the whole last basically quarter of the book is about what you can do at home and in your own community. So we kind of break this down in two categories. One is just thinking individually about your own property. You know, first thing, one of the first things to think about is your roof. Is your roof wood? And is it old? Does it need replacing? If so, don't put in a flammable wood roof. There are lots of alternatives, especially metal roofs that, that can be much more resilient to wildfire. Like I mentioned before, the real issue with homes and wildfires, floating embers that can get on your property and start a fire there. So making all of your house more resilient to that is the key. So the roof is a big ticket item. So if you're already replacing it, replace it. Look, think, think, look around your community for grants and stuff. Some communities have those grants. Um, also on your home, some of the low hanging fruit is like move firewood away from your house. Obviously firewood's flammable, move other flammable stuff away. You have to think about landscaping a little differently. So whereas you ordinarily might have all these beautiful plants and trees right next to your house, it can provide good shade. It's just sort of the way things are done. Being fire resilient doesn't mean sacrificing a beautiful landscape. It just means thinking about it in a different way. So like getting rid of that wood flammable wood mulch using other, other stuff, having a basically a fuel break between your house and if a fire were to come in from outside your house uh, or, if, or if an ember was to float right next to your house, you don't want it dropping into something that will ignite. Um, so an alternative to sort of the traditional landscaping thing could be, you know, using gravel or pebbles instead of instead of mulch. There's also a lot of resources you can find in our book and online about more fire resilient plants that won't just ignite, <laughs> go up in flames if, if an ember lands on them. You can also think about, you know, if you're living in a forested place, um, which a lot of people do, then you might need to thin out those trees a little farther away from your house. You so basically make it so that if so this there's not ladder fuel that could ladder flames up a tree. And then if the flames do get there, that there's not all this stuff touching each other to help spread those flames further. Basically, what you want to think about is trying to make it so that if a fire starts in your yard, if an ember floats down and starts a small fire, there's not this continuous path to bring fire to your house. You also want to seal up your house. So things like events and soffits should get sealed up with, with fine mesh to help prevent embers getting into your house and starting a fire there. And all of that stuff we find goes a really, really long way in making a home fire resilient. Now, I mentioned there are two categories. That's sort of an individual level stuff you can do. And I should also say, you know, Google FireWise, you'll find a whole bunch of specific practices that can get you started thinking. Google other fire resilience organizations in your town and community. There are professionals potentially where you live that can help you find where to start and what works for your needs and your property. But the other thing is, you know, this stuff matters little if your community as a whole isn't on board. So one of the bigger things you can do is talk with your neighbors, organize community meetings. You know, some communities have been doing, creating like tool libraries where you can lend stuff out to neighbors for free or volunteer your own time to help others who can't do that work on their own. You know, we need to get entire communities engaged with this work in order to be, for it to be effective. And same goes to local government, like lobby your city council for more codes and zoning and ordinances. Like this stuff isn't just big federal initi initiatives. It comes down to the, to the city, to the county level as well, and just to your neighborhood, like getting other folks involved, not just like doing it, you know, doing 
stuff to your own house also creates a norm in your community that can get other people to be like, oh, this stuff isn't so bad. It's not so weird to make my house more fire resilient. Other people are doing it too. Nick, uh, my wife and I were thinking of getting a house in Sonoma, uh, north of San Francisco. One place we saw we both liked, but she was concerned that um, it was in a fire zone. I mean, all of Sonoma is a fire zone. And it was up a, a rather steep hill on a small street, really a dirt path, which she was concerned would make it difficult for firefighters to get up there in the case of, of a fire. Is that something people should be concerned about, particularly in terms of buying new places or even dealing with their homes and the streets around them? Absolutely. So another thing to be thinking about is what happens if a fire does occur. And not so like, how do I get out of here? How do I know if something bad is happening near me? And if it is, where do I go? What do I do? So absolutely thinking about sort of like, can a large like fire truck type thing get through here? And or could, could there be two way traffic coming out of here if people are going up and going down? So if you're talking about a small, rough dirt road, that could be problematic. That could limit your evacuation ability. You should also always have a go bag pack, like have something ready to you know, hit the road at a short notice if you need. And also always make sure you're signing up for your area's emergency notifications wherever they come from. One thing, you know, I've found is that a lot of people don't know where to sign those up for. Like I realized when that flood happened last year, we got evacuated and I realized I wasn't signed up for the notifications. Uh, and so now I am. And now I know how, how that, uh, how that stuff works in my area. In this case, it's the county notification that you actually have to like be on an email list or a phone list. Um, so, in, in your case, think about the Sonoma property, you know, you can also look at, I think it's wildfirerisk.org, if that's correct. I can't remember the exact address, but you can Google it. There are websites where you can find out your, you know, your current address or an address you're thinking about what the fire risk there is like. And if that risk is high, that's something you should be thinking about. I can't say to do something or not to do something, but that should certainly be in the calculus you're using about whether to live in a place, just like it would be to live in a floodplain. You know, we don't mandate wildfire specific insurance in the way that we do flood insurance in a floodplain. Uh, so, like, it's a little bit more like the Wild West when it comes to wildfire. You know, where you're yeah, going. And, and speaking you know, of the Wild West, I mean, you live, I won't say in the Wild West, but you certainly live uh, in, in the wilder west of Livingston, Montana. Uh, I live in San Francisco, very urban place. Should people who live in cities be as, as concerned as, as people living in Sonoma or in Montana? You know, it's really tricky because the concerns are different. Um, I would say there are real risks in the Bay Area. There was what was called, I believe, the Oakland firestorm back in yeah, the 90s. Yeah, which was, that a was really catastrophic bad. tragedy. I mean, a lot of people were killed. Uh, uh, the, the speed of that fire was so shocking. Absolutely. So that's to say there is risk there. It just looks different. It feels safer when you're not around trees, right? Wildfire is something you don't think about as much. Or in the case of Maui, like unless you are aware of how wildfires work there, you wouldn't, ex like, we think of, you know, California and Colorado and Montana and Idaho and all these like Western states as wildfire places where they, where they happen. We don't think of the tropics, but in the same goes for cities, you know, but we've seen, we saw the suburbs of, of Denver of in Boulder County, the Marshall fire burn a couple winters ago. And so that's to say, think about what the fuel is. When I say fuel, it's the stuff that can that can burn if a fi if fire does happen. A lot of times, it's tall grasses, invasive grasses, especially can just they come right back after a fire too. So things like cheat grass, real bad invasive grasses, also also fueled that that Maui wildfire. So 
it's just trickier in a city, I would say. You know, it's a lot of people rent rather than own. You're in denser development. You might live in an apartment building, so you can't do those same things on your house. You should talk with local professionals and other organizations about what wildfire risk might look like. There are, it is more anomalous, I would say, for a large city like the heart of San Francisco to burn. But especially if you're on the outskirts of that kind of area, it's probably something you should be thinking about. I mentioned earlier in the introduction, Nick, that uh, we talked yesterday to Anya Kamenetz and I'm particularly concerned about what we should tell children and what we shouldn't shouldn't allow kids to do. What's your take on that? What's your take on that? Well, I don't have any kids, so I don't give this a ton of thought in, in my own personal experience. But, you know, wildfire presents challenges for anybody that's going to be outside. So one thing is to know what's going on where you are. Um, you know, actually, even since our manuscript was submitted for the book, I've found some good resources that are brand new that can help you understand the latest evacuation notices and where fires at are at. So one thing I would plug is a nonprofit app called Watch Duty. You can just download it. And it like will you know turn location services on and it'll notify you when wildfires happen near, near your area and update in real time. And locals can also contribute to those observations. So that can help um, just being aware of your own safety in an area and what's going on around you. And like if you might say, you know, if I was going to make a trip up to Glacier National Park, I could look at the app and be like, oh, shoot, there's a bunch of fires around. I should be aware of this, maybe rethink my plans or be aware to deal with the smoke. Um, thinking about kids, you know, thinking about vulnerability to smoke is a big deal. So I... You know, what I would say is one, make your home ready for wildfire smoke. That can mean a HEPA filter um, in your house to make sure that air is breathable. Or if you're on a budget, what we do actually is use a furnace filter on a box fan. And that, that also works pretty well. Um, you know, and also be ready for smoke if you have to be outside. It's an unfortunate part of life, but we've gotten used to it through the COVID, through, through the pandemic is wearing N95. So that can also help if you do have to be outside during times of wildfire smoke. Um, and, you know, with kids, with just like anything, I would encourage both kids and adults alike to not just think of fire as this bad limiting thing. Fire does rejuvenate ecosystems, too. So like when it makes the news in the way that it has been lately, it's because of its tragedy and its horror. But there's so much more to wildfire beyond that. So what I would talk to kids about is not just the horror and tragedy of wildfire, but also the beauty of it and the things that it does to the ecosystem that are really beneficial to create better habitat in some cases, to re literally breathe life back into forests that have become clogged up and out of sync. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways that you so can So what you're saying it. is lay off a little bit of the apocalyptic thinking and discourse that often parents seem to include with this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes a long way with a lot of these things. When talking about climate issues, when it's only framed as problems, then it seems so overwhelming and impossible to deal with. We need to be thinking more about solutions and more about ways to actually move ahead and, and address these crises rather than just sort of be paralyzed by the terror of it all. And you've clearly done that, Nick. Um, you... You've dedicated your life to this. My daughter's majoring in environmental science. Any final thoughts on that in terms of kids who want to get involved in this stuff, who want to try to address all these issues? Yeah, you know, one thing I would I would highlight is what's going on here in my home state, Montana. Um, you know, my local high school here, Park Park High School, has a green initiative that's doing really amazing work when it comes to the climate. We're hosting like a climate summit this year. It's gonna be like a conference for high schoolers from all over the state. So just getting students together to talk about this stuff is really important. Also here in Montana, we had something truly historic happen. There was a group of young, of 
young kids filed suit against the state of Montana, the held versus state of Montana case, because over the Constitution's right to a clean and healthful environment and the state's practice of continuing to permit fossil fuel drilling and extraction. And just, I think, last week, the the judge ruled in favor of the youth. This is truly historic, and it will change what's happening in Montana, and it shows that kids have the power to make true change. And one of those students was a member of the Green Initiative here in Livingston, um, you know, local high school student. So I'd say that's a huge thing to think about, you know, organize with other students and don't be paralyzed by that in, in action. We can see what, what students are already doing to make waves across the country.